It's time for Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. What's on the agenda for us today? Well, the first case on the agenda deals with the issue of when trustees can be removed from doing their job, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and the background to this case involves a, uh, a man who had uh, two adult children, one of whom uh, had uh, pretty severe learning disabilities, such that he was going to require uh, care, likely for the rest of his life. Uh, and back in 2014, uh, the man, the father of the child, um, was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer, very sadly. Uh, but he decided to put his affairs in order, including um, setting up a trust, which was intended to take care of his uh, adult son, potentially for the rest of his life. Uh, and the uh, the man uh, was not independently wealthy. Um, he was a part owner of a pub. His primary employment was as a custodian, but he was described by the B.C. Supreme Court as an astute investor. Hmm. Uh, and he had $750,000, which he put into this trust uh, to benefit his son. Um, and one of his primary concerns was his ex-wife, who is described as having an acrimonious uh, divorce prior to that. Um, and so the man set up this trust and appointed his two sisters as the uh, trustees and gave them pretty broad discretion to uh, pay for things that his uh, son, now age 36 as of now, uh, might require. Uh, and so on it went. The man passed away about a year after that, sadly, uh, and the sisters took over responsibility for this trust. Now, the twist is that the uh, ex-wife of the man, the mother of the uh, adult child with the learning disabilities, um, she got a power of attorney signed by the son uh, and then brought an application in court to try to remove the two sisters as the trustees and replace them with her um, so that she could become the trustee and decide how this money uh, should be spent. Um, And so that's how the case wound up in court. Uh, And so the judge had to analyze the conduct of the sisters uh, and whether they could, whether the uh, son uh, via the power of attorney ex-wife was able to displace them so that she could take over. Mm. Um, And so the various complaints that the son made via the ex-wife included uh, claimed uh, failures to pay for things and not uh, dispersing money in a free enough fashion, essentially. Um, One of the things that the uh, ex-wife wanted uh, to happen initially was that she wanted the... uh, trust to continue paying child support, right, for the adult son. Mm -hmm. Uh, While the man was alive, he'd been paying money to the ex-wife with whom the disabled son was living uh, as child support, even though he was an adult. Um, And so she was wanting uh, the trust to keep paying that to her, even though that's not a legal requirement, right? The obligation to pay child support doesn't continue after you've passed away. Yeah. Uh, And so she made that claim and claimed that uh, various other uh, reasonable expenses weren't paid for. And so the trust or the judge had to go through and analyze how the sisters had been doing. Um, And the sister's position was an interesting one. Uh, The sisters who were the trustee 
their position was the ex-wife should not be the trustee. That would be completely contrary to the wishes of uh, their late brother. But if the judge thought for some reason they weren't doing a sufficient job, they suggested that the judge should appoint a professional trustee, like a trust company. Hmm. Um, so the uh, judge analyzed what the sisters were doing and concluded that there was no suggestion they were acting in any improper fashion. Uh, they were paying for appropriate things, including travel for the son and the ex-wife uh, to go and meet family and others in Europe and various other places. Uh, and that the sisters were concerned about the long-term well-being of the son, including when the uh, ex-wife, uh, the mother, passed away, because the son then might require further, uh, have further expenses to be able to live independently. Uh, and so the law is that there are only limited circumstances in which uh, trustees can be uh, removed, right? If you have trustees that aren't acting in the best interests of the uh, person for whom the trust was set up, the beneficiaries, uh, or there are other serious problems with how they're conducting themselves, uh, then it's possible to have trustees removed. Uh, but the circumstances are relatively narrow, uh, and the uh, judge who heard the case pointed out that the sister's position, which was to say, look, we're happy to continue, but uh, if you think we're not doing something uh, in the best possible way, uh, you can appoint a professional trust company, was an appropriate position based on an earlier case from the Court of Appeal uh, that stands for the proposition that where there's some, in fact, serious allegation that the trustees may not be doing the best for the uh, trust beneficiary, uh, it would be appropriate for the trustees to, again, act in the best interest of the person for whom the trust was set up, because that's really the role of a trustee, right? Yes. Uh, a trustee has a fiduciary obligation to make decisions which are not in the interest of the trustee or anyone else, but in the interest of the beneficiary. And so that idea of saying, look, if you don't, if there's some problem that's identified with what I'm doing, uh, please feel free uh, to have somebody else uh, do it uh, was an appropriate position. But the judge concluded here that the sisters had not fallen short in any way, were genuinely interested in the uh, well-being of the uh, um, uh, well-being of the trust beneficiary. And so the ex-wife's application to try to have the sisters removed so that she would have a, a free hand as the uh, replacement trustee was unsuccessful. Uh, and the net result of that is that the uh, late father's uh, wishes appear to have been um, honored here, um, that being to uh, avoid uh, there being some, for example, challenge to his will or something else that would have permitted uh, his ex-wife to get control over the money he genuinely wanted to make sure that his uh, disabled son was provided for for the rest of his life. And so that's why he set up the trust in the way that he did. And the provisions of the trust were that whatever money uh, wasn't uh, spent uh, for the care of the uh, adult son uh, would then go to his adult daughter. Uh, and so uh, it's an interesting case that sort of points out those things, including the role of a trustee the circumstances in which you can and cannot uh, have somebody just replaced because you don't like the decisions a trustee is making. Uh, and it, it also makes that, uh, I think, important point about how a trustee should uh, conduct themselves where there is some uh, complaint about what they're doing, right? That mm -hmm. is the position always has to be do whatever would be in the best interest of the beneficiary, right? You shouldn't be clinging to the job uh, or making decisions to benefit somebody else. And so their position, which was, I think we're doing fine, but if you'd like a, 
a paid professional trust company to take over, fine then, <laughs> uh, was, uh, was the appropriate position. So I think an important thing for people to be aware of and something people may be wanting to be aware of if they find themselves in some similar position, right? If they have a, a concern about uh, meeting uh, responsibilities that a person might have after they pass away, this would be a way to structure your affairs uh, so that uh, those uh, objectives can be uh, met. Uh, and it does uh, avoid, uh, well, it's a little bit complicated to set up. Uh, it can avoid some of the things that might otherwise happen, like, you know, challenges to the validity of a will and that kind of thing. Um, here, um, the structure was set up and it worked. And so the net result is that the uh, sisters will carry on paying for things that uh, might uh, help the uh, adult son uh, for as long as he as he needs them. There we go. It has been said that brevity is the soul of wit. I'm reading in our next story here, brevity is not just good for advocacy, it's a requirement. How does it work? Well, that's true. Um, there are, um, uh, if you uh, are appealing uh, to the uh, Court of Appeal or indeed to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, one of the uh, requirements is that uh, you file uh, what's called a factum, which is a written argument setting out sort of a summary of what your argument is, but why you say the appeal should be allowed or not allowed. Uh, and that comes before what ultimately in those courts would be the oral argument, where counsel would show up and make submissions to the judge and answer questions, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some rules, and one of the rules is how long your factum can be. You can't just go on and on and on uh, forever. And so the way it works is that in the Court of Appeal here, uh, there's a 30-page lim page limit on civil appeals. Uh, and this case involves somebody who wrote a, what amounted to an 82-page draft factum. Hmm. Uh, and uh, then the, the way it works, if you want to go over your 30-page limit, uh, you need to go and ask permission uh, of a judge from the court. And so that's what this appellant did here, saying, I just can't possibly condense my argument into 30 pages. I need more. And they originally asked for a 60-page limit, but then when they showed up in court, they had a stapled or attached an 82-page draft factum to their uh, application to exceed the limit. Mm -hmm. And so the judge hearing it had to look at that and sort of the reasons why we have some limits to these things um, and pointed out that, look, you know, a factum is supposed to be a sort of a summary of what the argument is and listing the, uh, you know, cases you might be referring to, that kind of thing. Uh, but there has to be some cap on it. Um, otherwise, you're going to just expend all kinds of resources of the court having to fish through your, you know, treatise on whatever your legal point might be. And all the other people involved are going to have to deal with that. Uh, and so here... Uh, the judge reluctantly permitted uh, this uh, long-winded applicant to uh, have 40 pages, but in so doing, uh, ordered that whatever the result of the uh, appeal is, uh, that uh, the appellants will need to pay the costs of the other parties who had to show up uh, in opposition to this application to run on for 82 pages. Uh, and so uh, brevity, not only is it a, um, a, a good advocacy, as you said, it's the law, and uh, you can't just go on and on. Um, also, you should know that there are uh, time limits for things, including oral argument. Like, uh -huh. for example, in the Supreme Court of Canada, a light will go on, and that's it. Interesting. I didn't know that's, that. Right? <laughs> so there's, there's a, a light, light that goes on? Stop. Wow. Sit down. It's like the hook. Right? You know, it's, uh, 
trap look, door. You got lots going on here. You got all the judges here. You just can't go on and on and on, you know. Uh, and so eventually you get the hook. Um, so they have, a, they have a, in addition to a page limit, uh, they've got a, a system of lights, which eventually tell you to just sit down. Um, I don't know what happens after that. Maybe they just turn off your microphone and move on. But there, there's a limit. You, you just got to trim that thing down. I've said, I, you know, yeah. I often say in cases, you know, there's often like a, an inverse relationship between how many witnesses and how long you're going to take to prove something and how compelling your case is, right? Mm, yeah, if it's going to take you four weeks and 300 witnesses, you probably have a less than clear point or case, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the most compelling things don't take very long to explain. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is genuinely good advocacy uh, to trim it down and uh, deal with what's in fact important. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. We'll take a quick break and continue with our analysis of current affairs from the legal world coming up right after this. All right, back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue with Legally Speaking. Up next on the agenda, Michael, I'm seeing an investment advisor. I'm seeing a claim to be a spouse of a wealthy client. And it looks like it's a local angle as well. Help us understand this. Yes, indeed. So this is a case out of Victoria and the decision just came out. Uh, and it involves issues of the Family Law Act, gifts, and that concept of being a fiduciary, right? We just talked about that in the context of somebody who's a, a trustee. And the idea of being a fiduciary is you need to make decisions which are in the best interest of the person to whom you owe a fiduciary duty, right? So, for example, a lawyer acting for somebody is not making decisions in the best interest of the lawyer. They're making decisions in the best interest of their client, right? And the same would apply for people like, in this case, a financial advisor, right? Mm -hmm. A financial advisor shouldn't be making financial decisions to benefit themselves. They should be making decisions which are in the interest of the person they're acting for. That's kind yes. of the idea. Okay. And so this case involved uh, a fact pattern of a local financial advisor who at the time was 54, who met a wealthy, retired 70-year-old uh, male client. Uh, and uh, struck up a uh, both a professional relationship, accepting and doing work as a financial advisor, but also a intimate relationship with the client, um, which went on for a number of years. Now, I should pause to say mm -hmm. that part is not a good idea. No, right? it if wouldn't seem somebody so. Who's got a fiduciary obligation to your patient, client, whatever it might be? It is very ill-advised to be in some kind of a personal relationship. They're virtually incompatible. But that's what happened here. And so the next part of this uh, uh, case involves a claim under the Family Law Act, uh, which deals with the division of property. Uh, and the way that works is that uh, and people should know this before they're entering into a relationship. If you live with another person in a, quote, marriage-like relationship, close quote, for at least two years, you can then be subject to things including division of property if you separate. So let that sink in, right? Because I don't know that everyone is aware of that, right? Oh. It's pretty clear when you go and get married, sort of what you're signing up for, right? Yes. Uh, but for people that don't get married, if you sort of slide into a uh, relationship and wind up in a marriage-like relationship, and that goes on for two years, you can wind up being you know, in a position where there can be division of assets, for example. Wow. And like here, uh, the 70-year-old uh, 
retired uh, uh, investor mm-hmm. uh, had much more money than the younger financial advisor. And so that would really matter potentially. And so this case involved the, and then the third element of this case is that the uh, wealthy client um, wound up giving or lending, depending on whose version you accepted, uh, $100,000 to the financial advisor. Hmm. Again, it caused me to shake my head in terms of that, remembering the fiduciary obligation. But that's the fact pattern. Uh, And so the issues here were the financial, the relationship went on for a number of years. It went on for a period between 2012 and 2018 and then ended. Um, And then the issues between the two involved the financial advisor making a claim that this was a marriage-like relationship, and so she wanted division of property. And on the other hand, the uh, wealthy client uh, taking the position that, uh, hey, I want my $100,000 back, that was a loan. Uh, And Hmm. things were muddy uh, because the wealthy client uh, had also showered the uh, investment advisor with gifts, which were acknowledged to be gifts, including things like a Rolex watch and a BMW and various other things were going mm. in that direction. Yeah, And so that became mucky. Uh, but this case involves, and unfortunately this, uh, as was required by the claim being made, uh, all kinds of evidence. The case went on for 10 days in court. Uh, And then the judge had to analyze all the various factors that would go into determining, was this a, quote, marriage-like relationship? Um, And sometimes it's not clear. And here it wasn't clear uh, because this case involved the fact pattern included things like, for example, the wealthy investor uh, uh, client purchased a second condominium in the building in which he lived where the investment advisor moved into. But then her evidence was, well, I just used that really as a change place. I would come back from work, change my clothes, and then go up and have dinner and spend the night with my, she claimed, spouse, right? Hmm. And I would only go to this other place to keep my belongings. So she would say, we live together. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his position was, well, no, no, we never did that. Our finances were separate uh, and this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so it became very much a muddy, <laughs> murky water about what was going on here. Yes. Uh, and by choosing to litigate all of this, uh, it also involved things like sort of discussing the uh, intimate details of the you know sexual activity of the two individuals and. Uh, it involves sort of, you know, getting it, the judge having to get into things like, you know, other women that the uh, 70-year-old client uh, was uh, involved with and the breakups and get-back-togethers and, um, you know, the gifts that were being paid. And so, you know, I, I must say I also kind of shook my head as I read the thing, again, bearing in mind that context of, you know, what the obligations are of somebody who's a financial advisor with a fiduciary relationship to a client. Yeah. Um Thing, boy, this just is kind of lacking in uh, good judgment. Although she was described as you know very well educated, she has an MBA, uh, right? She gives financial advice to people, uh, but uh, somehow a blind spot as to the appropriateness of this uh, relationship, and and, and then uh, of course litigating it uh, has produced this uh, reasons for judgment that uh, required this judge to go on and analyze all of the intimate details of uh, these people's lives 
and uh, you know other girlfriends of the uh, you know the wealthy investor and uh, you know his position on that. Uh, and ultimately, the, the judge, having analyzed all of those things, including things like how did they introduce themselves, right? That's yeah. a factor, right? Does yeah. somebody say, this is my spouse? That's significant. Here, the investment advisor would often introduce herself as this is my client or this is my friend. That was an important factor. But on the other hand, uh, when the uh, wealthy client gifted the BMW to the investment advisor, um, the transfer form was filled out having her address listed as his address, the same <laughs> unit in the building, and then listing her as a spouse. Whoops. For, and on his evidence to avoid the transfer tax. <laughs> right? And so if you well, hold on right here. I'm he sorry, I should live laugh. With you. Yeah, right? that's, yeah, and okay. So, you know, what do you make of that? Uh, and then the, ultimately the judge analyzed all of this and concluded that this didn't make it across the line of being a marriage-like relationship. Interesting. But that wasn't the end of the matter because they're still the judge still had to deal with the issue of what about this hundred thousand dollars? Yeah. Uh, and the fact pattern was the uh, the investment advisor found out that the um, wealthy client had gone off on a vacation with another girlfriend. <laughs> and then there was a kerfuffle produced by that. Uh, and ultimately, it sounds like the reconciliation process included him providing her with $100,000 to use as a down payment to purchase another property. Hmm. Uh, but then the dispute became, was that a gift? Was this like the Rolex watch or the BMW? Or was this a loan? Hmm. Uh, and the law on that point is that when you receive something without consideration, like I didn't give you anything for it, you yeah. just gave me $100,000, the recipient of the uh, the money or the whatever it might be, they've got the burden of trying to prove that that was a gift. The law is that there's a presumption that when something is given with no consideration, it's being given as a loan. Hmm. And there would be a resulting trust that would flow from that. Interesting. And so money would have to be paid back. Uh, and so the judge here uh, preferred the evidence uh, of the wealthy investor uh, that uh, the money wasn't a gift. It was a loan uh, and uh, that he hadn't registered a mortgage because he trusted her and because the provisions of the mortgage that the investment advisor was getting didn't allow another form of financing to be there. And so he accepted his evidence and found that the investment advisor hadn't met her burden of proving that it was a gift. So the net result is, by the skin of his teeth, no division of property to the benefit of the investment advisor, and she's going to be required to pay back the $100,000. And uh, there's now a 49-page judgment uh, posted to describing the intricacies of her personal life. Uh, and uh, at the end of all of it, as I turned over to the end of page 49, it caused me to again reflect upon boy, who thought this was a good idea uh, as a sophisticated, well-educated investment advisor? None of this should have happened starting back in 2012. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan, all out of time for this week, but I'll talk to you next week, Michael. Thank you as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day.